evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dumpster Diaries. As always, I'm your host, Justin Allen, and I'm here with... Moses Wartooth. And I, I'm sure you're all aware it is Christmas by the time you're watching this, so we want to go ahead and wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Uh, you guys have supported us, and we are very grateful for it. And, you know, now is this time of the season where you're going to gather around the dinner table with your family. But when you do that, I want you to look deep down in yourself and ask yourself... What would it take for you to have your family for dinner? And that brings us into the title of this special. Cannibal Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah. So we were digging through it. We were trying to figure out a name for this. We were like, what are we going to do? What are we going to call it? So, you know, uh, we decided to do stories over cannibalism, um, you know, because it is the festive time of year and everyone likes to sit down and have dinner. Family bonding. And one thing I discovered during my research is we're only all about 10 days out from eating each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've got three stories that I want to get us uh, through through this episode. To get us into the Christmas spirit. To really, really get you into the Christmas spirit. <laughs> now, most of these stories, well, really all these stories revolve around survival. Now, we're not talking about serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know who else ate, ate people. Uh, a lot of people do it. Well, there was a German guy that would people would buy. He would buy their actual parts and eat them, but it was yeah. totally legal. Yeah. yeah. Fucking Germans, man. <laughs> so, They're hungry. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so, you know, these stories are more about people who were put in very, very unfortunate situations. Life or death. And they had to survive. And uh, so this is really a testament of the human spirit and, and like how far it's willing to go to survive. I want to play a game. <laughs> <laughs> you spent your whole life eating at McDonald's. <laughs> you say you love your family, but were you willing to eat your brother? <laughs> <laughs> you have two minutes, go. It's like, what the fuck? There's a key in one of your family members' intestine. I mean, they made ten of those movies. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some shit they did like that. True. You know what I mean, like, I mean, which, I, 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 I didn't watch all of them, but I watched a lot of them, and I don't remember any cannibalism, which is nah, kind of surprising. There was none of it in there. Lame. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there, maybe something around. Well, they're all rated R. I was thinking maybe there's something yeah. around the rating of it. You know what I mean? Texas Chainsaw have... Massacre revolves around that shit. Yeah, but do they ever actually show people yeah. eating on there? Yeah. I haven't seen them all. I think I just saw like the original. The original one, they have they tie that girl up and they've got a big old plate of human stew of her friends and they make her eat it. There's an old man and he's like force feeding her her, fi her friends. Okay, I was also like eight <laughs> when I watched it for the first time because we were at like a Halloween party with like friends of the family and stuff <laughs> and all the adults were watching it and like one of the dads that I know, he was an asshole, he was like, hey kids, come here, check this out. And then it was a scene where he's hanging the girl on the hook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? And then I was like, it ruined my whole night. I was just like, I had to go outside had to sit in a chair and that just, poor girl. <laughs> just stare into the distance and question my reality. You know what I mean? So, ladies and gentlemen, this episode, because when we talk about real stories, well, we always talk about real stories in this episode, but when we try to tell a story um, that is as fascinating as some of these, we actually do research, and so it is scripted. So it's not like our regular episodes where it's unscripted, where we just have a few talking points and then we let, you know, whatever come well, out. Well, I mean, out. to be fair, the, <laughs> the writing on the paper is obviously scripted, but our commentary is just off the well, cuff. So. Yeah, that is true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> For correcting me. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we're going to get right into it, man. So these stories, I'm going to go ahead and tell you we have three stories. And for those of you with queasy stomachs, some of this gets pretty graphic. Just pretend it's cupcakes. <laughs> you know what I almost did last night? 
Because I, uh, every year, like around the holiday season, like leading up to like the holidays until like restaurants are actually closed, uh, I'll go out to eat, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to Chili's last night and I almost, almost ordered a rack of ribs to bring them in the next day today uh, so we could actually just like heat them up in the microwave and eat them while we, while we, while we do the episode. <laughs> then I thought, I was like, that's too much. That's, that's too much. That's going to that's gonna make some people throw up. You know? It might make me throw up. I don't know. I got a really weak stomach, man. So, <laughs> all right, cool. So uh, like I said, we got three stories and they progressively just get worse. So the first one isn't really all that graphic. It's more of kind of a conspiracy theory. And it was something that I came across. Uh, it deals with cannibalism, uh, but the gentleman in question didn't actually participate in cannibalism. He, cannibalism. He was just around tribes that were cannibals. Oh, okay. Okay. So the first story is about Michael Clark Rockefeller. Okay. So he, uh, he was born on May 18th, 1938, and he died supposedly when they declared him dead November 19th, 1961. Is he related to the Rockefeller yes. family? He's okay. the grandson of Rockefeller Sr. Ah, sure. John D. Okay. Rockefeller Sr., the guy who created Standard Oil. They broke it up. It's major. Hmm. All, like, Texaco is, like, based... Standard Oil became like Texaco, Exxon, all the gas stations we pretty much use today um, in America. Because mm-hmm. uh, there was like a whole like antitrust lawsuit, like monopoly lawsuit, yeah. like, forcing to break up his company, which actually made him richer. Because then he become he became his own then competitor. They could, yeah, I was gonna say they could compete against yeah. each other. <laughs> and he owned all the companies, so he was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he was declared dead in November nineteenth, nineteen sixty one. So we're assuming, what is that, 1938 to 61? What are we looking at? That's uh, 23 years old. He was okay. a youngster. He was a young guy. And I saw, and I was looking through, and I was looking at pictures, because there's pictures of him and stuff. Uh, he was actually a pretty good-looking dude, man. He was in shape, and that, that plays a key role in this When he story. comes from rich family. <laughs> he, had good, he had a good diet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay, so uh, Michael Clark Rockefeller was a member of the Rockefeller family. He was the son of a New York governor and later U.S. Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, a grandson of the American financer John D. Rockefeller Jr. and the great-grandson, correct me, sorry, great-grandson of John D. Rockefeller Sr., the owner of Standard Oil. So on November 17th, 1961, okay, Rockefeller and a Dutch anthropologist, Rene Wasing, were in a 40-foot dugout canoe about three nautical miles from shore when their double pontoon boat, boat was swamped and overturned. Okay? So we, I didn't really tell you in the beginning where he was at. So he's in Papua New Guinea okay. right now. Um, so he went to college. He got a degree in, like, uh, history and economics. Uh, very athletic. Uh, just prominent, typical wealthy guy, right? And so one thing he wanted to do was travel the globe to all these remote tribes and collect artifacts to bring back for museums in New York and stuff, right? And uh, so he went to Papua New Guinea, which has a very, very, very secluded tribe well many several tribes but uh very secluded like remote like we're not no running water no electricity now there is it'll talk about it later but there is a uh like a dutch military base the dutch did colonize part of it but they kind of said hey this is our land right here you guys do whatever the hell you're doing over there we don't want to get involved right so they still let these tribes practice their own role like their own laws and follow their own rights and everything like that so anyway, uh, Rockefeller is in the boat with this anthropologist, and they capsize, okay, um, in Papua New Guinea. <clears throat> uh, their two local guys swam for help, but it was slow in coming. After drifting for some time, 
early on November 19, 1961, Rockefeller said to Wasing, I think I can make it. He then swam for the shore. The boat was an estimated 14 miles from the shore when he made the attempt to swim to safety, supporting the theory that he died from exposure, exhaustion, and drowning. Okay. So, boat fucking capsized. They're fucked. They're out here. They're like, oh, God, we got to, like, survive. We need help or whatever. Rockefeller's like, you know what? I'm I sw- can make it. I can do this. 14 miles. Now, on an open, like, le- like body of water, your eyes play tricks on you. Things, you know, you might, oh, that's not that far. It's like looking at a mountain. You're like, oh, it's just right there. Yeah. And then it's like 300 miles away, you know? So, I don't know. So, the theory is that he drowned. Or the belief, what they officially ended up declaring. So, Wasing, the anthropologist, was rescued the next day. <laughs> okay? If he would have just stayed on the boat, he would have been fine. <laughs> but Rockefeller was never seen again, despite an intensive and lengthy search effort. Now, his money put, uh, his family put, like, family money into this, and they hired tons of people. Just, they were flying planes and all this. Like, it wasn't even governments doing this. Like, it was just their own family yeah, paying these people like, to we do need this. to know what happened to him yeah they wanted like they're like i want my kid out of there you know what i mean because you know, eventually like they're thinking this guy's probably gonna be president one day or some shit right uh so get back to where i was at. uh so the next day the guy the other guy was found and Rock- rockefeller was never seen again <laughs> at the time his disappearance was a major world news item it was covered on like every mainstream media across the globe his body was never found that is key in this they never found his body and he was declared legally dead in 1964. Okay? So three years later, actually. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Actually, no, I think I got the date wrong. Yeah, no, they legally declared him dead in 1964, but they're like, he died on November 19, 1961, when he drowned. Which that was the day so he was, probably went He went for a yeah, swim. Yeah, so they gave it three years, I guess. You know, like That was generous. Well, I guess he's not showing up anytime soon, so you know we can cash that life he's insurance policy. He's not the policy. ruler of some New Guinean tribe by now, so... <laughs> We're getting there. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> uh, okay, so it was originally reported that Rockefeller either drowned or was attacked by a shark or possibly a saltwater crocodile. That would be a hell of a way to go. Yeah. <laughs> However, because headhunting and cannibalism were still present in some areas of the uh, of Papua New Guinea in 1961, there has also been speculation that Rockefeller may have been killed and eaten by tribespeople from the, and I'm going to mess this up, Asmat Village. A-S-M-A-T. So... <clears throat> these were like headhunters. Like, these were like tribesmen, like 100%. Basically, where their boat capsized was probably one of the worst places it possibly could. Yeah. Right? And so, let's just say he made it to shore. <laughs> you know? And next thing you know, he has like a villages of like headhunters who discovered fire probably like 100 years prior. <laughs> you know? So. And they're like, look at this guy. He looks nothing like us. Let's eat him. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to take a little break, and then we're just going to talk about this for a little bit. Because I read a little bit more about the tribes, but I didn't put it in this writing. Um, so, the tribes over there, they had... It's kind of like a wall that they had, right? And I can't remember the name of what they call it. But let's just say Moses is in a tribe, and then I'm in another tribe. And let's say Moses kills someone from my tribe. Well, I get to kill someone from your tribe. So it's like the Crips and the Bloods. Basically, yeah. It's Crips and the Bloods of Papua New Guinea, right? (laughs) (laughs) In the 1960s. And so they're literally headhunters, and they eat them, and there's a whole... And it's it's officially cannibalism because there's a whole, uh, like, a ritual behind it and, like, spiritualism of, like, I'm absorbing their power and stuff like that. And then they keep their skulls as souvenirs. 
So there's some of these tribes you can go down to where they just have like in their huts they have just walls of skulls of where they've just like killed enemies and then like fucking ate them, you know. Which also kind of has me alarmed because there's a thing. What was it? The prawns disease where eating brains. I've always heard that, but I don't know. And it will apparently make humans go crazy. I feel I don't know if that's like a scare tactic to keep people from eating people. I don't know if you need a scare tactic to keep people <laughs> from eating people, but. I mean, I, I mean, I don't need a scare tactic unless you get hungry. We'll get wait till we get to these next stories. You're gonna find out, yeah. Unless you start getting hungry, because <laughs> I'm gonna start asking some questions to you later. So the official theory is that, like, hey, you know, this guy just drowned, and if he didn't drown, then he was just murdered by some tribesmen, right? Um, because a lot of these people had never seen a white man before. Yeah, and they would, and uh, there's like quotes that where people went down later and interviewed them, and they. They used to think that, like, white people were demons and stuff like that. I mean, because imagine, like, imagine you just, like, one day you're walking through the woods and you literally just see a green person. You're like, that's a fucking alien. I mean, I would think alien, but you know what I mean? You don't know what you're looking at, you know? Like, especially if you've never seen it before. So, time goes by. And, you know, there's there's been books written about this, and they all come to basically the same conclusion, right? Now, a couple of years ago, some filmmakers, I believe they're still working on the documentary right now. A couple of years ago, some filmmakers were like, hey, we're going to re-attack this issue. We're going to go back and investigate it and do all this stuff with it, right? Like looking for this guy? Uh, just the story behind oh, it. They're okay. not looking for him. They just want to get down to the bottom of it. Because there were, while most of the stories were all like pretty much lined up, there were some inaccuracies, right? Because like, people went down and interviewed like, one tribe, and they were like, oh, they drowned. We never saw them. And then another tribe was like, no, we killed them, but don't tell anyone we did that because we don't <laughs> We don't want problems. Like, they were, like, threatening to, like, curse their families and stuff if they told anyone that they killed. I think they actually called him a white devil at one point. (laughs) So, you know. But anyway, so this older gentleman, these two filmmakers, they they start making this new documentary, right? And they're like, okay, like a modern documentary. Because all the other ones, you got to remember, this happened in the 60s. So a lot of the coverage was happening in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. And then it just kind of died out, right? So these two filmmakers find a guy who was a cameraman who had a bunch of footage from down there. Like he went traveling down there, like in the seventies, in the eighties and stuff had all like just like a warehouse of film, like eight millimeter film, like stuff like that. Right. Like old school stuff, nothing digital. And then he was like, yeah, you can have all of it. Right. And this is where the story gets really fucking weird. <clears throat> Captured on a small camera as it plays across the ranks of 17 approaching cannibal war canoes. The image is fleeting, but unmistakable. So this guy films basically this river, and they have these, like, huge, 40, like, big-ass canoes, man. And it's just, like, these Papua New Guinean warriors on there, right? And so he's just filming it. And it's a quick, quick film. Among the massed ranks of dark-skinned headhunter tribesmen heading around the bend of a New Guinean river is a naked and bearded white-skinned man, his face par- partially covered in war paint as he paddles furiously. <laughs> the appearance of a white face among the throng of cannibals would be astonishing at best of times, but in these circumstances in which this footage was shot, it is potentially mind-boggling, and he believes that that is actually Michael Clark Rockefeller who decided to stay down there. So at that point, how old would he have been? I believe when that film... Oh, I guess that that was old, so he wouldn't have been... Yeah, it was was only like... It was like his 30s or something tops. Yeah. Yeah, it really wasn't even... I don't think it was even a decade later. And I saw the film clip, and that... And I kind of compared it to like a photo of him, and I was like, whoa. Could be him? Could be him, yeah. I think it is. 
Because I mean, it's it's his facial hair. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of difference of like ethnicity, but like his facial hair is different. I mean, it's there's no denying, and it's not albino that he's a Caucasian. Yeah, it's a it's a white dude down there, and so when you go back and you look into like Michael Rockefeller's like history, like especially his like fascination with like anthropology and history, apparently he like developed like an infatuation for the these tribesmen. And, like, so they found, like, his cameras, and he's, like, hanging out with, like, all these tribes people, and they're taking photos, they're all <laughs> smiling and laughing. And, you know, there was a couple of jokes floating around the internet talking about how, like, basically, he thinks it's all fun and games, and they're like, we're going to eat your ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but my theory is Michael Rockefeller actually lived, uh, stayed down there, because, you know, like I was saying, like, he was infatuated with this stuff, but also, apparently, there was reports of him kind of being tired of his family. Like, uh, not just his family, but just, like... The lifestyle. The, the lifestyle, the industrialization. Like, he was like, this is not how humans are meant to be. And some people <laughs> believe that he just found a place... A he new, wanted a new... to go way back to his roots. <laughs> <laughs> he went back to the cradle of motherfucking yeah, yeah. civilization, you know? What, Africa? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so... That is the story of Michael Clark Rockefeller. So let us know in the comments, ladies and gentlemen, if you think this guy is alive or not. Yeah, did he make the 14-mile swim? Did he f- make it onto land? I feel like his, like he could have made it on the land, and then his, like if he was surrounded, I feel like if he half, like if he knew all, it would be like the first 20 seconds would depend on if he would live or die. So like as yeah. long as he could get out of that and be like established that don't kill me, I think he was probably golden. Yeah, and I think he was also like familiar with a lot of their language too. So, so like as long as he could pop off some kind of semi, yeah. Thing and he'd already spent quite a bit of time down there too. So like, and those tribes, like, there's a lot of them. But like, I just I think if a white dude in the '60s like that was down there, trading goods for artifacts, taking pictures, talking to them in their language, I think that rumor would travel really quickly throughout the jungles. You know what I mean? And people would know like, hey, and I think if someone saw it, they'd be like, that's probably that dude. (laughs) Like, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say it's that guy. You know what I mean? But who fucking knows? So apparently the Dutch military that colonized down there a little bit, uh, they, uh, they, they searched for him too pretty extensively and they, they couldn't find shit and they interviewed tribesmen and they were just like, yeah, like he's dead, you know? But what if the, what if the Rockefeller dude was like actively hunting white people and eating them? (laughs) <laughs> like he went full native yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know he's like, he, that's a whole new definition to get the hell off my property stand your ground laws down there dude <laughs> like you know <laughs> holy fuck dude <laughs> what if we had stand your ground laws in Texas where you could just fucking eat someone within 10 feet of your car you know like <sighs> god that's the that's how you end world hunger yeah legalize <laughs> cannibalism encourage cannibalism hey, somebody's man. sick that eat them Bilderberg group's calling for like the depopulation of the human race down to like 500 million apparently yeah whatever we'll cover that on the second conspiracy theory episode <laughs> we do <laughs> so okay so we're moving on like I said ladies and gentlemen these stories get more gruesome the first one wasn't really that bad um but this one is pretty despairing, although there's not a lot of details in it. The last one's going to have more details, so just giving you a heads up. All right, Moses, are you familiar with the Donner Party, or Donor Party, how you want to say it? Donor yeah, party. Donner. I don't know how it's called Donner. Donner. Yeah. I feel, like that, that, I feel like that is the most widely known story of cannibalism. So I didn't know about it until we decided, really? to, until we decided to do this subject, and then I researched it, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and then I watched the movie about it, too. Right, have you seen the movie? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> they took some liberties in the movie 
right? Uh, to make it better, I guess. Because uh, when I was doing the facts, I, there was a lot more people. Like, the movie makes it seem like there's only, like, half a dozen people or so. And, uh, but, like, no, nah, there was, uh, you'll clearly see there was actually a lot of people. At one point, there was over 80 people in this group. Um, but yeah, this is a, this is a rough one, dude. And this goes on for a long time. I didn't realize <laughs> how long, how long this shit lasted, man. Woo! All right. So we're gonna call it the donor, donor, donor party, right? I, I call it the donor party. I want to be called it two separate things. I donor mean, party. The only way I've, I've, ever, I've only heard it called the donor party. All right, so. I'm gonna fuck it up throughout this. Yeah, whatever. whatever. People, people get it. Okay. <laughs> so starting off, and there's a lot of information about this, so some of it I'll kind of read through a little bit. Uh, the Donner Party, a group of American pioneers named after the expedition's captain, George Donner, who became stranded en route to California in late 1864. The party was trapped by exceptionally heavy snow in the Sierra Nevada desert, and when food ran out, some members of the group reportedly resorted to cannibalism, cannibalism of those already dead. It was the worst disaster of... <laughs> Of the overland migration to California. California. God, I cannot read to save my life today. <laughs> Donner Lake and Donner Pass, California California are named after this party. It's kind of... Also, it, Donner Kebabs. I call those donors because it has one N. Organ donor. <laughs> <laughs> those uh, euros or whatever? <coughs> yeah. When I first moved to Germany, I was calling them gyros. I, I, I still call I'm like, give me one of them gyros. <laughs> Everybody's just like, what are you, stupid? Like, yeah, typical. They're like, you're American? No shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to the journey west. Okay, Donner Party. The fertile lands of Central California drew a steady stream of settlers in the 1840s. And in spring of 1846, several families from Springfield, Illinois, the Simpsons. Yeah, that's what I was saying. like the Simpsons. <laughs> joined the westward, westward migration to California. Families of brothers George and Jacob Donner and local businessman James Reed left Springfield in April, on April 14th, 18, 1846. Okay, also I have dyslexia apparently, so I along with not being able to read. With the addition of roughly a dozen Teamsters and employees, this initial party numbered some 31 people. And within a month, the Donners and the Reeds had reached Independence, Missouri, the town. There, on May 12th, they became a part of a main wagon train headed west. That California gold rush, man, where all that wealth was being made, supposedly. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay. So now we get onto the Oregon Trail. So they basically just band together with some other people, right? So the group made good progress all the way to Fort Laramie, what is now southeastern Wyoming, covering roughly 650 miles in six weeks. Jesus. I read that and said, God damn, brother. <laughs> like, imagine that shit. Like, I know you got a wagon or two, man, but like 650 miles in six weeks. I, I remember playing the Oregon Trail on the computer. It's <laughs> like, just all like... Just they were hurt. always getting dysentery and bit by snakes and running out of meat and all it kinds of shit. It just never ends well yeah. for anyone in that yeah. group, dude. <laughs> Family of five, you're lucky if anybody makes it to the fucking end of that <laughs> shit. dude. Like, you know, if a kid gets separated from the herd, it's like, ah, fuck Bobby's it. He's gone for good. <laughs> Keep like, going. You can't turn around. <laughs> yeah, there's a... I was listening to a, a U.S. historian talk about it one time and he was he was explaining he was like a lot of movies don't even depict it the right way like just how treacherous the terrain was in North America he was like grass you gotta think grass was like never cut yeah like so you would just find patches of grass that would just be like chest high 
and like kids were just dude. Big. There was mountains. I heard about that shit. shit. Like, like the yeah. kid, if the kid just wandered off into the grass, they would just never be yeah, seen just, again. Yeah, they can't find them. Yeah, dude. and it's like there's no roads. <laughs> so like, wait, if you would take wagons, a lot of times you'd have to abandon them, which is we'll find out on this story what happens in a lot of cases and stuff. And because you get to a point, it's just impassable by vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then I'm yeah. assuming at some point it's impassable by walking, too. You better pray to, like, fucking hell, you don't make a wrong turn. Yeah, you'd have to just get lucky, <laughs> I guess. Just, I guess it's, like, east and west would kind of be easier. Just follow the sun, like, where it's, yeah. you know. But whatever. Rising the east sets in the west, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, uh, where were we? Okay, so they traveled 650 miles in six weeks. So everything's going good at this point. Things are looking up. <laughs> so on, on, uh, on July 20th, 1846, the company divided. Mistake number one. Uh, th- with most of the wagon train then turning north towards Fort Hall, which is in modern day southeastern Idaho, and using the well known Oregon Trail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to, uh, to continue the journey uh, west. The Reeds and the Donners and a number of others chose to head southwest toward Fort. Bridger. This would be the first of many <laughs> mistakes that they would make, you know. <laughs> but they were given bad information. They didn't know it yet. Didn't but know it. Booked up. <laughs> yeah. It was at this moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they fucked up. When they knew, they fucked up. There's gonna be a few of those moments in that <laughs> shit. I can tell you this. The group had elected to use a shortcut in quotations to California that had been recommended to them by an unreliable guide named Lansford Hastings. While at Fort Laramie, Laramie, I keep pronouncing that wrong, Reed had been warned against attempting the route by an old friend from Illinois who had just completed the west to east journey through Hastings Cutoff. But the group chose to press ahead, so he was already warned, don't go that way. They were like, nah. Yeah, because they're just looking for a shortcut, you know? They're like, hey, this is a quicker way. Let's go. You're going to learn today, kid. <laughs> All right. The party elected George Donner to serve as its leader, or captain, as some people would like to use. And at its peak, the Donner party would number some 87 people, of which 29 were men, 15 were women, and 43 were children. That's a lot of kids. That's too many kids. <sighs> you got two, buddy, and it's sometimes like... I'm, I got two, I'm like, and sometimes I want to eat one. Like. I'm like, how do you handle this? <laughs> you know. <laughs> in a column, also in a column of 23 oxen-drawn wagons. So they had quite a bit of wagons on them, right? All right. So the next part of the story is Hastings Cutoff. This is their shortcut they're trying to go to, right? On July 31st, the Donner Party entered Hastings Cutoff, which would take the group south of the Great Salt Lake in what is now Utah. Hastings had claimed that his route would shave off more than 300 miles from the journey to California. However, in reality, Hastings' cutoff was 125 miles longer than the established trail. (laughs) That was probably about the time. (laughs) Well, they didn't know at the time, but I mean, fuck. Fuck me, dude. Uh, Which... uh, it's 125 miles longer than the established trail, which people had already been traveling, right? And was already, I'm sure, at least half-ass worn down. Yeah, and they'd post signs on the way and stuff like that, you know, and, and they had, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, camp set up or whatever, where people would leave food oh, provisions yeah, yeah. and stuff. And there was, like, some, like, government influence and stuff like <clears throat> that, too, to, like, help keep supplies alive and stuff like that. And then there was, like, rescue missions if people ever, like, got stranded and stuff. But... 
Not on Hastings. Not on the short <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, 125 miles longer than the established trail, which ran north of the Great Salt Lake, and it would take the pioneers through some of the most inhospitable country <laughs> in the entire region. <laughs> <laughs> so, not only is it longer, it's, it's just all around way worse of a dude, trip. Dude, this is a whole other definition of fuck. <laughs> dude, I'm telling you, like, I've used the term, like, oh, this is fucked or whatever. When I read this story, I was like, that that's a whole other level <laughs> of, like, we just, we're fucked right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> During their first week in the cutoff, the Donner Party made good progress, with hopes high. Hastings, who had promised to lead the migrants along the trail, left Fort Bridger with a different company of wagons, and it failed to read to act as the company's guide. So the dude who was like, hey, I'll take you to this cutoff, was like, I'm out. He's out. Yeah. <laughs> I think he knew. I think he knew that it was bullshit. Probably so. And he was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm not doing this. You know what I mean? As they broke a new trail, new trail... Through the nearly impassable terrain of the, and I'm going to mess this name up, Wasatch? Yeah, Wasatch Mountains, they lost about two weeks' time. On August 30th, after gathering as much water and grass as they could carry, they entered the Great Salt Lake Desert. A note left by Hastings had assured the party that they would be able to cross the desert in just two days. But the journey took five. (laughs) (laughs) The party lost dozens of cattle in the desert, and several wagons had to be abandoned. The pioneers lost uh, valuable days conducting a fruitless search for the missing oxen before beginning a circuitous navigation of the Ruby Mountains in modern northeastern Nevada. Basically walked in a big-ass circle. By the time the Donner Party reached the Humboldt River, where Hastings Cutoff rejoined the main California Trail, it was late September. All the other migrants of the 1846 of 1846 had completed their journey to California, and the Donner Party was racing the weather to clear the passes of the Sierra Nevada. So now, if they would have stuck with the original guys, they would already, already be, be in home. California. Yeah. So now they're already far behind, and it's September. And what's coming up? Winter. Winter. Winter is coming. <laughs> Winter is coming. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And this shit ain't no joke, buddy, what happens to them in the wintertime there, man. So, all right. So, by this time, tensions were running high amongst the exhausted migrants. And on October 5th, an, ex- uh, an altercation between Reed and a teamster employed by another family ended with the re- with Reed fatally stabbing the man. <laughs> Some members of the party suggested that Reed be hanged, but he was instead banished from the company. Reed would continue west on horseback while the rest of his family remained with the Donner Party. So he just rode on up ahead? Yeah, they were basically trying to enact like court... And they were like, hey, like, you should be punished to death. And they were like, fuck it. Like, I'd have been like, no, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'd stab somebody else. Be like, anybody else got any problems? Like, you know? <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> Looks like I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what was, what was weird is like, there's actually not a lot of records about all this stuff, though. Um, really, like, like not as many as you would think or whatever, considering, like, once I got online and started researching how much is out there and stuff, like, it's like a few journals and stuff. I was going to really say, like, I mean, unless someone that was on the trip that survived was writing about it. There, there were survivors. Like, yeah, there were survivors. Uh, one, one, I mean, I'm just saying, if I was having a, if I was in that position, I wouldn't be writing in no fucking book. I'd be just eating people and trying to live. 
I ain't got time to write no I mean, book. you got to think about the time you have all day, every day. Like, you just walk in and you're like, shit, okay, you, like, lay down. Like, <laughs> say you say you ate a fucking rib or two. I don't know. It's like, you know, you got a full belly. What the fuck? You, I mean, you can only jerk off so many times, you know what, what I mean? What if you can't? I mean, all could all them people even read and write? Uh, a lot of them were actually illiterate. That's stuff. what I figured. Like, yeah. uh, one woman... Uh, I actually cut it out of this because her writings were because they quoted her verbatim what she wrote and she was an idiot it was so misspelled that i was like i can't even read this <laughs> like this looks like some sort of code you know <laughs> but i think she wrote a letter to her sister and it talked about what had happened because like news had spread by the time we get to the end of the story and she was like hey like don't let this uh dissuade you from coming like, I don't regret making the journey, and then we'll go into, like, all the shit they did. But I had to eat my uncle. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, but it's great out in California. Come on out. <laughs> you know? Like, fuck you, don't man. Don't take that fucking shortcut, though. <laughs> fucking savages. I ain't going with you. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> the so, person got that letter and was like, what is this shit? I can't even read it. And just threw it in the... <laughs> <laughs> So James Reed basically just gets convicted of murder, pretty much, like, in a makeshift court, and they banish him, and he goes on, right? So that's where we left off. His family stays with the Donner Party. Lame. All right. <laughs> the migrants began the ascent of the Sierra foothills low on food, and the Indians killed several of the remaining oxen. So now they're getting picked off, basically, right? By this point, the members of the company had buried virtually all their personal possessions, except for food, clothing, and the barest essentials needed for survival. They did this in an effort to minimize the load of their exhausted animals. On October 31st, the weary migrants approached what is now called Donner Pass across the Sierra Nevada, across the Sierra Nevada, and found their progress blocked by deepening snow. This snow was fucking deep, brother. And you know, I, I mean, it's it, in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, what I uh, was reading, when I found out how they were able to like to tell or whatever. Uh, I don't think I actually put it in this one to be honest with you, because I did some. On. Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, they looked at trees that were cut. Oh, so when they were like, okay, saw the, where they were cut, like at. yeah, this tree was cut like eight feet up off the ground. Yeah. they were like the snow had to be roughly like this, and it was just like insane heights, dude. And I was like, fuck that. And a lot of times they were like in waist deep snow and stuff, man. Bro, you ever been cold? Like imagine non-stop. Our second, our third story gets into like what it's like to be really cold, <laughs> but yeah, you know the story that's coming. But but this shit, man, this is a whole nother mind fuck right here, man. Like I, I get like you know starving out, like whatever. But you know, like if it's fairly warm and you got like fresh water, like you can you can work with some shit. You can make yeah, it a week yeah. or two. You know what I mean? Like because I think it takes what the human body on average like what is like twenty days, twenty one days to die of starvation from food. Yeah, as long as you have water. It's like you got three days for without water, as long as you're not like in some crazy environment, like a like a, yeah. a desert. Yeah. You know? But uh, I'm sure water wasn't a problem, man. They're just probably eating snow. God. But I mean, they say you're you're not supposed to do that either. What what is a uh, what is the reason behind all that, man? I mean, if you can if you can heat it up, that's fine. But if you eat cold snow, it just cools your body off faster, and you get hypothermia and die. Like it, oh, it doesn't really? actually help you out; it just hurts your body in the long mm -hmm. run. I was basically thinking, like probably like maybe like dirt, bugs, parasites. No, nah, because you know I mean, I mean? if you, even like scooping off the top layer of snow, like yeah. you're not even close to the ground, and as yeah. long as people haven't like sh literally true. shit on top of it, like you're fine. Like. Yeah, but not. It's 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 just because it's cold. God damn. Okay, so anyway, it's getting cold now, and they're in some shit ton of snow. Okay. <laughs> 
So by this time, they're basically wandering around, we'll call it like waist deep snow and shit, right? And so now the party basically built crude cabins near what is now known as Donner Lake. The Donners, the family, whose progress was delayed by a wagon accident, made a similar camp a few miles further east on the trail near Alder Creek. Eight days of almost continuous snow fell. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <Whew>, God. <laughs> like, you're falling. God, could you imagine? I was going to question... I was going to question why they built a fucking camp, but I mean... It was just too I guess if they, could, they probably couldn't even move at all yeah. at that point. And so. I think, uh, I believe that they were just like, okay, maybe we can wait out the winter. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> they need more of them cows for that. Yeah. Because while they're still low on food and stuff, they do have some now, and yeah. they could, from what I kind of gathered and read and all that, they could possibly ration it out to get through the winter, but they'd be on the verge of starvation Towards the end of For the sure, because hell, that like winter, yeah. I'm, I would assume that's probably at least four months yeah. in the fucking mountains. Like, yeah. Whew. Okay. <laughs> so eight days of continuous snow followed, pretty much, during which time many of the oxen, the chief reserve of food, because they were eating these oxen, mm-hmm. wandered off and were lost. Wandered off. They didn't have no fucking rope. <laughs> I, I was in the 1840s. I wasn't there, bro. Like, well, then if they if they wandered off, then how the fuck had they hung around on the trip the whole time? Like, yeah, I would have. You think they'd tie them up or some shit? Something, man. And like, like, I mean, who knows? Maybe someone was intentionally doing it, man. Maybe like the natives, like the Indians, were still following them. <laughs> that would be funny. They, they were like sneaking in at night. <laughs> I heard stories, man, about how like uh, some of the Native Americans. Um, like some of the oh, uh, the immigrants for the westward expansion, like they would follow them, and then in the middle of the night they'd cut off, like cut their horses loose. So then these like basically like cowboys, they were just sitting they, ducks, they, yeah, and they would just and the Indians would just follow them and watch them till they just died of starvation. <laughs> yeah, so uh, who knows? It could have been something like that. Interesting pastime because it was snowing heavily, so it was probably any footprints or it was probably oh fuck that would suck dude imagine this oxen getting loose and then you're just like where'd they go be like i don't fucking know it snowed two feet last yeah. night you know that way let's try that you know plus like even, even trying to trying to walk in that deep of snow is pretty much impossible like unless they yeah. were able to make like makeshift those snowshoes mm-hmm. to get on top of the snow yeah you can't do like you and then you're, you're burning more energy just to stay warm and then it's like twice or three times the amount of work just to, to shove, move, move yeah. man like yeah dude it's hell not a good no. position to not be a good not, not at all <laughs> i lived in alaska for a little while but i was like in fairbanks so it never got like deep deep snow man mm. like knee deep is about all the worst i ever saw man but that was enough for me brother like i'm, I'm yeah no desire to ever do anything like this <laughs> okay so the oxen wander off and they're lost basically damn near the last of their food on november 20th patrick breen whose family had joined the party in Independence, Missouri, that we talked about earlier, began a diary, which he continued until March 1st. Breen's account of the winter from, from 1846 to 47 would provide the only contemporary written record of the Donner Party's ordeal. On December 15th, Bayless Williams, an employee of the Reed family, died of malnutrition at the late camp, and his, first, his was the first recorded death in the camps although many others would follow soon. On December 16th, a party of 10 men and 5 women set out to cross the mountains on improvised snowshoes. They were tired of this shit, and they were like, we gotta get out of here, we're going to die, right? People are already starting to die of like malnutrition and starvation. Yeah. Like, we gotta get out of here, right? During a month's 
harrowing, often overwhelming hardships from cold, storms, deep snow, and inadequate food, they struggled on for one month walking through that shit. Dude. This is 10 people? Uh, 10 men and 5 women, so, okay, 15, so 15 people 15 total. People. Eight of the men died, and the bodies of some of those were eaten by the others. Two men and all the women got through the sac- got through to the Sacramento Valley, so they made it to California. But eight of the men were killed. Uh, they either died. And all of the women made it. All the women made it. Hmm. So there was, like, some civility between them and stuff. Like, you know, like, hey, ch- women and children off limits. Like, we're, you know. To eat them? I'm going to say, yeah. I mean, when I was <laughs> <laughs> like, I have a pause and thinking. I'm like, like some, like, historian's going to be, like, re- watching this and be like, these idiots have no idea what they're talking about. But, I mean, it seemed like, I mean, because you got to think, like, they, 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 they tried to have, like, a court when there was a murder. Right, I'd be like, "Fuck that!" And All bets are off. I think there was, and this was the the mid eighteen hundreds. So they're, you know, these weren't like savages, total savages. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, so of the ten men and five women who went to basically go forward, right? Seven of them made it. Uh, what did I say? Yeah, seven of them made it. So two men and uh, the five women made it, right? To the Sacramento Valley. The settlers of California organized a relief party which left Fort Sutter, also known as Sacramento today, on January 31st, 1847. Heroically struggling through the deep snow, seven men reached the lake camp on February 18th, so a little like two and a half weeks later. Mm-hmm. Then they took 23 of the starving immigrants, including 17 children, back to the settlements. Several deaths occurred on the way. Other relief parties followed. But because of illness and injuries, it was all, it was impossible to remove everyone. After dogs and cow hides had been devoured, many deaths occurred, and the survivors were forced to resort to cannibalism of the dead bodies. So, the movie portrays it of like there was murders that occurred. Like they to were eat just people. stabbing them and eating them yeah. and shit. <laughs> The journal and some of the records kind of like insinuate that like, hey, like we weren't actually killing each other. Like we were I mean, eating dead bodies. Yeah, I would think there'd be plenty of people that were already just dying. They wouldn't have to actually <laughs> yeah, murder this, anybody. Yeah. And it's cold as fuck, so it probably preserves it. Yeah. For like a while, you know. Uh, okay. Yeah, bury that shit in the snow. <laughs> the last survivor, uh, the last survivor, Louis Kessenberg, who had supported himself during the last weeks by cannibalism, did not leave the camp until April 21st. Five of the immigrants died before reaching the mountains camp. 34 of the camps were on the mountains while attempting to cross, and one just after reaching the settlements. Two men who had joined the party at the lake also died. The total of deaths was thus 42 with 47 survivors. So, um, so like basically half and half. Yeah, yeah. Now the movie makes it seem a lot. It makes it seem like it's a smaller group, and it's way more vicious than what it really was. But <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it hadn't even hit winter yet, and they were already just killing each other and eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they shoot one guy in the head. Like, they, I think I think at one point when I watched the movie, like they basically draw straws with sticks. Who get the oh, short stick? Oh yeah, yeah. And that was the first guy who had to sacrifice himself for the group, right? <laughs> and it's just like I don't think that actually happened. But like, we never know what really happened though, because the guy didn't start keeping the journal till later on. Yeah, and. And maybe he didn't. He only want to kept make, it till March. I mean, maybe he didn't want everybody to be made out as like 
killers. Could be. So could be trying to save like some face, you know, mm-hmm. some of the families and stuff. Because like, if we do make this dad alive, I don't want to be immediately <laughs> labeled a psychopath. I, th- I believe some of the, you know, because there was like a businessman on there. Like, some, I think some of the families they actually had money and they financed this whole thing yeah. like, to get there. So it could be a lot of that. Because you remember back back in the day, people actually cared about reputations and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, slap you with like white gloves and be like, I challenge you to a duel. Yeah, I mean, fuck it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so getting on to the third story revolving around cannibalism is titled The Miracle in the Andes, A Tale of Survival, Resilience, and Human Spirit. <laughs> it's so uplifting. Like <laughs> It is actually kind of an uh, I mean, this has got this is a horrible story. Uh, <laughs> but it is kind of got an uplifting vibe to it because these people really work together to let the survivors work together to get out of there. Um, but in Spanish it'd be uh, Milargo in los Andes if you want to know that yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, I'll get to do a brief one because uh, this is pretty pretty simple how I wrote this out but I'll give you a brief overview of it essentially it was a plane crash that occurred in the Andes Mountains in 1972 and there was 45 people on the plane and they were stuck on that mountain for quite a while <laughs> so let's get right into it The Miracle in the Andes is a remarkable story of survival that unfolded in the remote and treacherous Andes Mountains range in 1972. This harrowing tale revolves around a Uruguayan rugby team whose plane crashed into the mountains, leaving the survivors to face extreme conditions, isolation, and the ultimate test of human endurance. This incident not only captivates the imagination, but also serves as a profound exploration of the human spirit, uh, human spirit, resilience in the face of adversary. I said that wrong. Human's spirit in the face of adversary. Okay, so jumping right into it. On October 13th, 1972, uh, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, carrying 45 passengers, including members of the old Christians rugby team, crashed in the Andes. So this is like a college rugby team or whatever. So a lot, all these guys on the team are like young. I think the youngest guy was 18 years old. The old Christians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you got so South America, so religion is very, very heavy there. So uh, that actually plays into our story. We'll t- it'll just be one of these side facts that I throw in, but... Basically, everyone was extremely Catholic, right? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, the team was en route to Santiago, Chile for a match. So they were flying from Argentina to uh, Chile and to go to do a rugby match. The survivors faced immediate challenges such as the harsh mountain terrain, extreme cold, a lack of proper equipment, with minimum food supplies, the group quickly realized that their chances of rescue were dwindling, forcing them to make difficult decisions to stay alive. So they crashed? Yeah, so they, they crashed. So when so essentially, when the, they flew out of Uruguay and they were in Argentina, right? And they're flying on like this super shitty, it was actually an old re- retired Air Force plane. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, something, I can't remember how many of these planes were made. I think it was like 75 of these planes were made. And then over like a 50 year period, like 25 of them crashed and they killed like 400 people total or some <laughs> shit. Like, yeah, I was like, stop flying so these things. So they were fucking flying death traps. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway. They take a, uh, so they're, they're getting ready, and uh, the captain, the main captain that was flying, was a seasoned pilot. Like, he had like over 5,000 hours of flight time. He knew what he was talking about. And the, the weather from Argentina to Chile, where they were going, was really bad. 
and already just flying through the Andes Mountains is difficult enough. It's just it's just a dangerous terrain to fly over. Mm-hmm. A lot of turbulence. Weather can sporadically change. So he was like, "No, we need to like let this weather cool down, wait. and we'll wait." Well, the rugby team and all the and the other passengers. So that they had the rugby team on the flight, but then there was other just passengers that were on there as well, and some of the team members brought their family members as well with them like one guy famously uh nando parado brought like i believe his mother and his sister on the flight so they're pressuring these pilots like no we have to go now we're like to go. don't be a bitch Just yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I, I thought you were yeah. a pilot i thought you knew what you were doing it's gonna be okay it's a puddle jumper it's a short flight you know so th- this plane isn't even designed to travel at high altitudes like it's not designed to hit like thirty-five thousand feet i believe in most cases i don't even think it can even really reach over fifteen thousand feet <laughs> so, so it's very low it would be like if we flew out of like a regional airport to a regional airport yeah. you know real small plane or whatever um so eventually uh the main pilot is still trying to hold his ground but the co-pilot is a very inexperienced pilot uh this is one of his earlier flights he's like i got this (laughs) he's like i got this well he's he's, cocky he starts to fold (laughs) from the team pressuring him and then he pressures the pilot he's like no we got this we can do this we can do this so eventually they're like fuck it we're gonna go right so they take off and they're flying and they're going through the Andes Mountains and then they start to hit turbulence. So I actually learned a little bit about turbulence looking into this. So the rapid ascent or descent is fine. When it starts to vibrate slowly and it starts to get worse, that's when you're fucked. Don't ask me to explain the physics, but apparently that's like the worst thing that could happen to you. So when a plane starts shaking, that's when you need to get worried. If you just dip, you're fine. Like when I went down to Brazil, when I was reading about it, it reminded me when I went to Brazil, uh, we were flying down there and I literally, I had to hold this woman's hand on the plane. Uh, she was really in our group, but she was already scared of flying. Oh yeah. And we're down and we're already in Brazil at this time. And we start hitting bad. It's a bad storm, man. There's like lightning and shit, you know, <laughs> like you can't see, you can't see dick out the window. Right. And this woman is sweat. Like she's having a panic attack, man. And I'm just like, fuck, we still got like an hour left in this flight. Cause we flew out of Miami down to Manaus, Brazil. But anyway, neither here nor there. You're sitting beside her and you're like <laughs> quiet and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs> just, oh, I was just joking. You feel better now? Like, you know? Oh, sorry. I was dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> I had a flashback. <laughs> I was like 14 at the time. But uh, so at one point the plane starts to vibrate that we're on and then it just drops dramatic. Like I felt, you know, when you're like, driving at high speeds and you kind of go over like a small hill and you kind of or like a you kind of feel like your insides go up a yeah, little like bit yeah like your stomach turns or whatever yeah that's to like the 10th degree man <laughs> I was like holy shit it actually kind of scared me for two seconds and then she's just like squeezing my hand with like a death grip and I'm like telling her I was like it's okay it's fine like these guys are professionals and I'm 14 years old this woman's like 40 years old and I'm like trying to calm her down right but anyway we landed safely we were fine not like these guys <laughs> so, you know. so anyway they take off and the turbulence starts to get bad right and they're over the Andes Mountains and then the right wing clips into the side of a mountain okay instantly breaks off okay <laughs> and then it rotate it flies through the air and it cuts the tail off and instantly eight people are sucked out the back <laughs> right and then the plane so cr- now it's time to panic <laughs> <laughs> now it's time to panic when you look back and you got a clear view of the Andes <laughs> mountains now it's time to start fucking praying to whatever god you believe in because this is not going to end well and le- i'll just tell you in this story whatever could go wrong went wrong like it was 
horrible shit these guys had to go through, man. And I honestly, just time-wise, I couldn't fit in all of the details that I wanted to. I was, I was like, oh my god. Because two of the survivors ended up writing books about it. And then there was a movie made in 1993 that had Ethan Hawke in it. Uh, whatever, they could have found somebody better, <laughs> in my opinion. So, uh, but A Broadway musical... <laughs> <laughs> sure. <right? laughs> so anyway, so then eventually the left wing quip, uh, clips a mountaintop, mountain ridge, breaks off. So now it's the tube, right? The fuselage. And it just, bam, wrecks into this mountain. And it just starts sliding like fucking Santa slide, dude. <laughs> it is going. They estimate between 120 and 135 miles per hour. Right? Just barreling down a fucking just mountain. barreling down a mountain. <laughs> no wings, no tail. Eight people were gone already, right? <laughs> Out of the 45. <laughs> the numbers start dwindling fast in this group, man. I'll tell you that. So the problem that really starts to occur that I'll go ahead and put into your mind is that because it is in the Southern Hemisphere, the seasons are a little different than it is for like us in America in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Because of the tilt of the it's Earth like and all that. Yeah. And uh, so they the winter time down there was relatively mild in Argentina and Chile. Right. Um, so most of the people on board, they just basically had like T-shirts and blue jeans and they were not prepared for winter. Winter. <laughs> winter. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, winter is coming. Yeah. And so. Um, so anyway, they're in this tube and they're fucking sailing down this mountain ridge, man. I can't remember what they said. I think they said it went like 5000 feet before it crashed into an embankment. Right. And it instantly crushed the nose. First problem here, who sits in the nose of the plane? Pilot and co-pilot. Used to. <laughs> Used to. <laughs> now, luckily, though, uh, one individual I was reading about, he had he almost described it as divine intervention. Something told him while the plane, the, the fuselage was sliding down the mountain ridge to stand up in his seat, like to get out of his seat and stand up, and he held on to like the luggage rack, right? Like a bus. Yeah. And when they crashed... Uh, it collapsed part of the fuselage. His friend that was sitting next to him was instantly crushed, and the seat that he was sitting in was crushed. So him standing up was what saved his life. Now, the pilot is instantly killed. He's just crushed. <laughs> the co-pilot, however, is only crushed from the waist down. Oh, perfect. Yes. Now, they're in the Andes Mountains. I believe it was about 10,000 feet above sea level, if I remember right. And um, it is cold. <laughs> okay, so they go from like 60 degrees, you know, like, whoo, yeah, oh, I might put on a long sleeve shirt, no big deal, to negative their ass off, negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> right? They are not prepared for this shit. <laughs> and to make matters even worse, um, a lot of the major supplies that they would need that they find later was actually in the tail of the aircraft. They got cut off that they went away from. So that'll come into play a little bit later. But anyway, so um, I'll, I'll actually read uh, this next paragraph and we'll talk a little bit more um, because in the writings that I have for it, they're not very detailed, but I just read a lot about this, so mm. I know a little bit about it. Okay, so uh, the next phase is survival and difficult decisions. The first few days after the crash test, uh, after the crash tested the survivors' ability to endure the br uh, brutal conditions of the Andes. With little food and in an adequate clothing, the group faced the harsh reality of their situation. To survive, they had to confront moral dilemmas including the decision to resort to cannibalism to sustain themselves the uh, this controversial choice became a focal point in this story sparking debates around morality ethics 
and lengths humans are willing to go to sur survive in extreme situations. Isolation in the unforgiving Andes played a significant role in shaping the survivors' mental and emotional states. Cut off from the rest of the world, the group had to rely on each other for support and companionship. See, a lot of their survival actually played a key role in the fact that they were a team already, and they'd been playing together for years. And so they were of, like family. Yeah, and these guys were in shape. Yeah. Um, too, so that's important as well. Uh, they will, they will, they will live. No, sorry. The will to live became a driving force. The survivors formed a tight-knit community that provided emotional strength during the darkest of moments. This aspect of the miracle in the Andes highlighted the power, the power of human connection and the importance of resilience in the face of overwhelming odds. After enduring a total of 72 days of unimaginable challenges, a rescue mission finally located the survivors. The story of the miracle in the Andes not only recounts the physical ordeal, but also delves into the emotional aftermath. The survivors face the daunting task of reintegrating into society, haunted by the memory... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, just go back to the office like nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> haunted by the memories of their, their ordeal. The incident left, an, it, it left a mark on their lives, and the lessons learned from their experience continued to resonate with people of, around the world. I did a little conclusion. Uh, the Miracles in the Andes remains an enduring testament to the strength of human spirit. This extraordinary tale of survival, resilience, and uh, will live to serve as a source of inspiration and reflection. The story challenges us to consider the depths of human cap capability and the choices individuals make when faced with life and death situations. The Miracles in the Andes... The miracle in the Andes is a reminder that even in the face of seemingly unsurmountable challenges, the human spirit can triumph and, and the will to survive can lead to miracles. As long as you got extra people to eat. <laughs> so how many people lived okay, so out, out of, of that 43? Uh, yeah, so now I'll just hit it with like, the facts and okay. go, off, go off the spiel for this one, man. Um, so out of the 45 people who were on the plane, 40 were passengers, 5 were air crew, right? Uh, including the two pilots, right? Um, so out of total survivors that survived, only 16 survived. After 72 days. Okay, and they reported like some temperatures at night got like down to like negative 30. Fuck. Yeah, because when they originally crashed, um, they still had, like, it was going to get colder as the weeks went by. Yeah. But, uh, so, to kind of go back to the story, so the original crash, um, you know, basically, Pilot is fucking, he got nixed right off the bat, right? Um, they crashed, like, this tube slides down the mountain, they crash. A couple people, well, a decent amount of people are, like, relatively okay, but... When people start looking around, it is just piles of mangled bodies and, like, arms and limbs and shit. So they immediately go to work and they try to, like, start getting survivors out of the plane. And when they step out of the plane, that's when they start to realize just how fucked they actually are. I'm telling you, guys, this gives, like, a whole new meaning to the word fucked. They're like, uh, it's cold as fuck out here. Yeah. Now that we go back, these are college kids. So it's not like... They had some resources about them, right? Um, for example, one guy was an engineer. Um, it was actually the 18 year old kid was an engineer if I remember right. His name was Roy. Uh, two of the two of the students on the plane on the rugby team were uh, first and second year medical students, so they had some idea of like how to handle some of these like hardships yeah. they would face, and so the medical students immediately just go to work, right? <laughs> and like there's a story of like one of the med students, his friend literally got impaled with a pipe, right? 
and he was like, hey, like, come take a look at this, <laughs> you know, and then, I think something's wrong, <laughs> yeah, and, like, it doesn't really hurt here, or here, but this shit right here, <laughs> like, I think something's wrong here, <laughs> and it was in his guts, oh. and so the medical student was, like, telling him, he was like, hey, okay, like, just be calm, like, you're, you're, you're bad, but there's people who have it a lot worse right now, because there was, like, compound fractures from the femur, like, I'll get into that in, in a second, for, like, people had, it was bad, and um, one of their friends, too, uh, Nando Parado, which actually became one of the main characters in this story, uh, he just shattered his skull on impact, right? I mean, because they were going 220-plus miles an hour, and then you abruptly stop, right? <laughs> and it's like car wrecks. Like, even if you have a seatbelt on and you're, like, physically not touched, your organs and your brain still have that velocity yeah, and that momentum. Yeah, from that stop. Like... Yeah, so you're fucked already. But his skull gets completely shattered, right? And they said the, the the reports account that his head swell swole to the size of a basketball. <laughs> and like he's a fucking alien. <laughs> yeah, dude. And he's fuck and he's unconscious too. Thank God. Thank God, right? <laughs> like you would not want to be conscious during this shit. And um so they're like in the medical students, like they're trying to like kind of like how I don't want to say like how like doctors would do in that situation they're basically not being like hey you're gonna fucking die you know yeah. like or whatever you're but like you're gonna be alright yeah it's gonna be okay cause they cause the, the, everyone's in shock right now and they, he's like my ribs are literally sticking out of my fucking body <laughs> yes dude <laughs> so like his friend with a pipe for example like he tells him he's like okay like you're fucked but you're not like completely fucked like some of these other people and he's already looking around and he's noticing like dead dead like they're gonna like some people are already dead but like these people are going to die they're yeah. not gonna they're not gonna make it through a night yeah. of this right and you gotta remember they just crashed so like they're, they're they're in shock but then the initial like feeling after that is like panic right and then people start kind of thinking like oh we're gonna get rescued any minute they know we're supposed to land in no time yeah, like whatever it may be right a search party yeah and so anyway, they go to work and they, they take the dead and they kind of like remove them from the fuselage. Um, then they, like, cause it's just a tube, like an open tube. <laughs> so they literally build like a wall of suitcases to keep out the cold air because yeah. it's cold as fuck. Right. And then they get all their clothing out as much as they can to make makeshift, uh, like winter gear, I yeah. guess, you know, like they're cutting seats and shit like that and everything like that. So, um, anyway, I want to go back. The friend with a pipe in his stomach, as soon as the med, the his medical student friend was just like, just stay here, don't do anything, he pulls it out. <laughs> he pulls it out. And they said about a foot or two of intestine came with it. And then he was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, called the guy back over, and he's just like, fuck, what did you do? The guy's like, uh, yeah, you're dead now. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and so they literally just shove his intestines back into him. And they disinfect it with cologne, which, oh. <laughs> yeah, dude, because like, they, they had, like, no supplies for this shit, man. And um, so, anyway, uh, they get the dead out, um, and then they, they build, like, this little wall, and, you know, they got people makeshift, like, fucking bandages, whatever they could do, right? Now, this is where the first real piece of shitty news comes in, <laughs> in my opinion. So one of the main guys, uh, medical guys, he goes and he talks to the co-pilot. Now, this guy is crushed from the waist down, right? So he can't move. And he's in agonizing he's, pain. He's, he's done. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes him a while to die. Some of these people took days to die, man. And they like, and you, there's no painkillers. There's nothing. Like, you're just living in that pain. They would have to be like, kill me. <laughs> like, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> so, so the pilot... 
medical student goes and talks to the pilot and he's like where are we like where did we crash and he gives him the name of this area and he's like oh okay like that's not too bad like we're pretty close to chile well the co-pilot being as inexperienced as he was and some people say there was like a faulty altimeter so they thought they were at a different altitude and blah 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 there's a couple other facts around that uh he basically was 40 miles off the mark (laughs) (laughs) so they're thinking they're a lot closer to civilization when really they're 40 miles down the fucking road yeah in like waist deep snow and it's negative 10 degrees outside (laughs) in the sunlight you know (laughs) So, so so anyway the pilot is or co-pilot is screaming in agony and apparently and thank god these guys kept their mouths shut about it he asked for his gun he said that in his like carry bag that the carry-on bag that he had a gun and he wanted to blow his fucking brains out understandable yeah because i've always heard that like any compound fractures of the femur are actually the worst pain that you can experience really as a human like that's the worst break in a bone and both of his were just completely gone like bones are sticking out of the legs and shit yeah. dude and they wouldn't do it they were like we're not doing that we're for not religious having... reasons yep for religious reasons because once again it goes back they were all catholic for the most part um and you know suicide is the ultimate mortal sin and that's direct ticket to hell like you can't enter the kingdom of heaven based on based on catholicism with that there's no way around it if i was that co-pilot i'd be like oh, i've already denounced every fucking thing i know give me that gun so i can end this shit <laughs> and they didn't because they were so religious they didn't want to be an accessory to it yeah you know i'd be like just toss it over here i'll try to grab it like come on <laughs> all right so uh so nano parado we'll go back to him right main guy um basketball head dude right so they literally they're like okay he's breathing but the med students tell everyone they're like he he's not gonna be here tomorrow morning so they push him in the back of like the little makeshift room that they have right near the suitcases near the outside Mm -hmm. and the mixture of the slightly warm air on the inside and the cold air on the outside kept his body at just the perfect temperature to prevent more swelling which is what saved his life so after a few days, he came to consciousness, and this dude ended up, like, surviving the whole thing. And His he be- head went down. Yeah, yeah, it went down with normal, and then he was... I think I can't remember if he actually wrote a book about it or not, but two, like I said, two of the survivors wrote books about it. But uh, he he becomes one of the big leaders actually, like of the group and stuff, and helps keep people's spirits up and shit like that. <laughs> and uh, but remember, Nando Parado's mother and sister were on the plane. Now his mother was killed damn near instantaneously, if I remember right, <laughs> crushed. But his sister was mangled as fuck, <laughs> and it took her. 10 days if I remember right 10 days to die and she just screamed non-stop and like they would have <laughs> they, they would have breaks in the like like everyone would be cool like they would have moments because they were like young guys they would have moments where they would just make jokes and laughing like nothing was happening yeah right and then like there would be like people who would kind of snap for like a brief minute and like apparently one guy was like screaming at her like if you don't shut up like i'll come over there and like fucking kill you or like some shit like that right dude i mean it would drive you insane Yeah, it was driving them crazy yeah yeah. because she was slipping in and out of consciousness but when she was awake she would scream uncontrollably until she passed out again god i'd have been like we need to go push her like to the side like get her (laughs) out of here i don't want to listen to that shit but it was the guy's sister right and ultimately it was kind of sad but like nando parado like held his sister as she died and so they're like, okay, so more people are just like dying, right? They're moving the bodies outside. <laughs> so he was like, all right, start heating her up. She's dead. We can eat her. <laughs> oh, we're not there yet. <laughs> so a few days go by and they're like, okay, uh, rescue plane's not here. Uh, no helicopters, army, <laughs> where, where fuck those guys are at, right? And another thing about this is that they're at such a high altitude, there's less oxygen. Oh, uh, okay. So like 
walking is taking it out of you. Like yeah. doing anything is difficult, right? Some people described it as like you have to take three breaths just to have the equivalent of one normal breath, right? And so, uh, anyway, a uh, few days go by, and then, the, like, the young engineer, the 18-year-old Rory was his name, I believe, he, uh, he gets to work on trying to fix a radio up, right? And they're able to make a makeshift radio, and they make a makeshift antenna out of a bunch of, like, copper they strip out of this fucking plane, right? And they catch it on the news, talking about the crash. And this is day eight, Remember, old girl's still screaming in the background. Day eight, right? Uh, <laughs> Kill me. Like, yeah. fuck, dude. <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I believe in sympathy deaths. Like, if someone's, like, that fucked up and you're completely fucked and they're like, just fucking kill me. Yeah. Like, like that co-pilot, I'd have gave him the gun. Yeah, like, I'd have been like, on. here's the gun. We're going to go walk off for, yeah. like, give us, like, five minutes and then All right. It. Even, okay, so I'm sure murder is probably kind of looked down upon, too, but is it, it's probably not as bad as suicide. What if, what if they would have, like, killed the person as a mercy kill versus letting him kill himself? Did they just not want that on their conscience? Well, it'd go down as murder. Yeah, but, I mean... Religiously-wise, it would go down as murder. Now, like, in a standard court, like, I don't think a jury would find you guilty in that situation. Because it's like, uh... Canada lets you voluntarily kill yourself. There's a few countries. Netherlands so, has that, like assisted suicides yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, not in America, buddy. We won't give you. We'll give you shit healthcare. We won't even give it to you. The only way you can do that shit. is if you look out and get the death penalty. Yeah. <laughs> and I want you alive every grueling moment to the end. Yeah, and even on that you shit, know? you got to sit on death row for twenty fucking years. And, you know, or even if you're just sick with like cancer, it's like they want you alive to the very last minute. You know, you got to milk every dollar. It's almost inhumane, really. Honestly, you think about it. like if I was dying, like like pancreatic cancer runs in my family, right? And it's like, like it's horrible. Like it's there's almost nothing they can do for it. Yeah. And you just gotta live through it. And a lot of times it takes a long time to die from it. And dude, if I'm like in the final fucking stages of that, if there was a doctor that would just shoot me out, I'd have a little ceremony, say bye to my family, maybe have a nice dinner if I could stomach it or whatever. And I'd be <laughs> like, fucking pump that shit in me, buddy. Let's get this. Let's get this. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Let's get this yeah. shit over with. You know what I mean? But anyway, so let's go back to the story. Um, try to wrap it up. It, it, this is actually a really long story, but I'm not going to like make it a huge fucking thing for us because <laughs> then we'll go to like two hours or some shit. But uh, so anyway, they get this radio, and on day eight, they get the news. Now, they can only hear. They can't transmit information. Okay. Because uh, it's legit like a handheld little radio. Um, they get the news that the search has been called off <laughs> on day eight and that they just basically have all been announced dead. And at this point, the majority of people are still alive. So two guys hear this news on the radio, and then they have a little sidebar, and they talk about it. Like, hey, like, one, should we mention this? One guy was like, don't tell him. Yeah. Another guy was like, no, nah, we have to. They debated it. And then the guy was like, we have to tell him. He's like, it depends on how we say it. He's like, we can make it sound better than what it really is. So it's like, all right, you do the talking. So they go in. Walks in, and the first thing out of this kid's mouth was like, great news, guys. They called off the search. <laughs> and then, like, 30 people are like, what the fuck? Like, how is that great news? And then he gives this whole, like, uplifting speech about how, like, now they know it's up to them to survive. And they have to get out of there, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so that's day eight. And then day ten, they haven't had any real food. Now, when they crashed, they had, like, a few bottles of, like, wine there was like i think a bottle or two of like whiskey there was like a thing of like peanuts a couple of crackers snacks but it was it was gone quick right and luckily uh one of the teammates it was early on was like we have to ration this out so they literally would like pass like i think it was like a deodorant cap 
and they'd be like, okay, everyone gets a cap full of wine a day. Yeah. Now, water wasn't an issue because they would harvest snow and they would actually melt it mm-hmm. uh, on the wings. Like, they strip, like, aluminum off and stuff, and they were able to heat it with the sun. Oh, okay. And they pour it back in the wine bottles and stuff. So now they weren't drinking a lot, but they were enough to where, like, dehydration, dehydration wasn't going to be a problem. Yeah. So anyway, day 10 rolls around, and the first guy gets the idea of, like, hey, if we're going to live through this, we have to start eating people. And they kind of start debating it. And this wasn't an easy decision. Like, the group was just, like, majority of them were, like, fuck no. Yeah, because you know whenever this. you bring up that idea, the most people are going to be, like, no fucking way. There's no, no fucking way, way I can do that. And they so <clears throat> main guy, the first guy who brought it up, <clears throat> he told them, he was like, look, there's all these dead bodies out here. And he was like, we'll use their meat, right? And they were debating it, they were debating it, and they were just talking about, like, the moral, like, ethical issues of it. And they're, like, one guy was, like, saying, like, once we do this, we'll never be normal again. <laughs> like, we can never go back to being ourselves, you know? We're always going to want you. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know. Like, get the... Because isn't that, like, a thing, supposedly? Yeah, like a supposedly. Like, a myth or something? Yeah. Like, once you get the taste of it, then that's all you ever want. Yeah. And so, uh, eventually, they come to the conclusion that if they don't eat these dead bodies... Um, then they were indirectly committing suicide on themselves. Because they're choosing to starve they're, to death whenever there is food available. Yeah. And that would be a mortal sin. And so they held hands, they prayed about it, and then uh, they basically were like, okay, like God wants us to do this. <laughs> and uh, Pass the barbecue sauce. But what was cool, even though we're <laughs> just fucking barbecue, like they got some of that shit in the back. <laughs> but uh, you know what's interesting about this whole crash is they never ran out of cigarettes the entire 72 days they were there. God damn. Yeah, because Chile had a cigarette shortage. And so when they were when they were flying from like Uruguay originally and they stopped in Argentina, but uh they flew from Uruguay Uruguay originally, they uh they loaded up on just a fuck ton of cigarettes. <laughs> so like people literally just chain smoked through the whole fucking thing. They never they never ran out. Dude. <laughs> so they had one pleasure in all of their pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like one dude, I remember he was telling a story. Like in some of their first food rations, they had uh, they had found like chocolate covered peanuts, mm-hmm. and like each person got like one peanut. Yeah. Like and uh, it took him three days to eat it. First day he ate the chocolate. Second day he ate one half of the peanut. Third day he ate the other half of the peanut. <laughs> fuck me, dude. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, where, where, where the fuck was I with this? Uh, okay, so they hold hands, they pray, and they kind of come to the conclusion like, hey, like you know, we have to do this, right? And. Nano uh, uh, Parado, he speaks up the guy with the mo- uh, with the mother and the daughter, and he just literally asks them like, "Hey, like no matter what, can you just leave my mom and my sister out of this?" They're like, "No can do, fresh meat." <laughs> They're like, "The young ones are like veal. They're the sweetest." <laughs> well, out of like a moment of like civility, they all agreed and they all pledged that they would leave his mother and sister alone. Right, I'd be like, whatever, pussy. My grandpa's back. They here already had over a dozen bodies. Like right. they, they, they had some, they had some stockpile to get through, right? <laughs> and uh, so they all agreed, but then they also all made the pact that, as they basically gave permission to each other to eat the other person. So they were like, you know, as time goes on, if more of us die, you have my permission to eat my body. Yeah, I'd be like, fucking, I'm dead. Eat me, try yeah. to live. Dude, if we were in that situation, I would fucking day one. I'm <coughs> sorry, day one. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna be like, hey, man. We fucking die. You fucking yeah. take it. You fucking whatever in some shit. Like you can eat me. I don't give a damn. <laughs> Fire up my fat ass and heart. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I'd, I'd be pissed if you didn't. Actually, like, you, know? you idiot. <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> All that meat you just wasted. <laughs> so yeah. So time goes on or whatever, and uh, <clears throat> you know people were like literally starving. Now when they first start eating, this is where it starts to get really gruesome. When they first start eating, they're taking small slivers. 
And they make like a designated guy to go do it, right? So, <laughs> so the others don't see it. Just one dude? Yeah. Yeah. It, it eventually turns into a, a three-person assembly line. Okay, I was going to say, like, yeah. they just pick, they're like, you are the fucking yeah. body yeah. snatcher. Like. <laughs> yeah. Because they didn't want to deal with, like, the psychological impact. Because these were, like, their friends. Like, they knew these guys for years since they were, like, kids and stuff, man, you know? And, I mean, fuck the air crew, I guess. But, like, come on, man. That's, that's David, man. I've known David for ten years, you know? So, anyway... They take small slivers. Now you gotta remember, it's frozen meat. Yeah. And they just they put it like on like this little aluminum like stretch of wing that they have or whatever, and then they just dry it out in the sun. And then a lot of people said like when when they first started eating it, they would just put it in their mouth and instantly swallow it just to get it down, right? And there was one guy who was having trouble. Like he was getting sick from doing it. Like he was just gagging and like, oh god. Like just thinking about it, I guess. Yep. And then eventually, like. Time goes on. He gets hungrier. He gets hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And then they they have moved past like the first extremities that they're taking slivers of meat from. Now it's like, okay, we have to go after things like the torso mm-hmm. and vital organs and shit like that. So they literally have a designated guy who <clears throat> cuts up the main parts of the body, passes the smaller parts to a second guy who then fillets it basically, gives it to a third guy to then like, He's, like setting it out the- finally like I guess trim the rest of it off or whatever. So by the time it gets to the third guy, you don't even know, you can't even tell that it's human meat. But the first guy had to literally like rip apart like his friends and shit like that. And so this kind of just goes on for like a while or whatever. And uh, eventually they decide like, we're going to make an expedition. We have to get out of it. We had to send our we're running low on bodies. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's really what it was. And uh, by this point, and I've kind of like, brush past it they have survived two avalanches and a blizzard okay and uh every avalanche they had someone died <laughs> yeah like and uh one avalanche actually filled the tube with snow and that nando parado guy the guy with the basketball head mm-hmm. was buried now there's a thing that i found out when i was reading about this called the helmet of death when you're buried under snow um, it's where, like, if there's, like, a pocket of air around you, you'll be able to breathe a little bit. But as you breathe, it'll melt the snow. And if it's cold enough on the outside, it'll refreeze. Oh, so then it's, like, a solid ice thing. Helmet, and just... yeah. And you'll just suffocate. Makes sense. From, like, CO2 poisoning or whatever. Also, what I learned is if you're ever in an avalanche or, like, a car wreck, goes underwater or something like that, and you're disoriented, you don't know which way is up, spit. Because if the, whatever direction the spit goes, you know you need to go the opposite direction of that shit. So if someone's listening to this and that saves your life, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, man, they get they get tired of it and they're like, fuck it. These three guys, they team up together and they, they start trekking through the mountains, man. And it is brutal, man. Because so they're... Well, they're- so they're 40 miles off of wherever they think they are anyways. Yeah. And they have this huge <laughs> debate on whether or not to start trying to trek back to Argentina or push towards Chile. Mm. All this other shit, man. And, like, if they would have gone back towards Argentina, they would have all died. It was just too far? Yeah. And at this point, too, they had also seen, like, rescue planes, like, in the first eight days or whatever, flying over. They just couldn't see the planes because the plane was white. And it's against, like, a white capstone of the yeah. mountain. Plus, it's wedged so far down. Yeah. Like, so, they, God, that's got to be the most soul-crushing thing in the world, dude. Be like, fuck. <laughs> right there, dude. <laughs> so, Nando Parado, hero of this story, um, he uh, hooks up with two other of the strongest guys, and they give them, like, big portions of meat to take with them. <laughs> a whole and, leg just throw it on his <laughs> <laughs> You know? <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Um, they actually had to make snowshoes out of human skin. Nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's how gruesome it got, man. Because uh, <laughs> what if they put their feet inside of human heads and just used them as shoes? Oh god, it's gross. The, mo- <laughs> the movie downplayed uh, a lot of like the cannibalism and how like dark they really got into it. But yeah, it was it was it was a lot worse than the movie. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, they start trekking for hours and hours and hours, and then they finally these three guys with Nano Prado basically leading the team uh, find the tail, and in it, it's like a godsend. Um, now they, they had gone several hours, which it actually turns out the tail really wasn't that far away. Um, but because of the high altitude, the deep snow, you're burning like three times the amount of energy yeah. to get anywhere. It's pretty damn lucky that they found that shit anyway. But it took them two hours and they found it. Um, and then also too, like when the plane originally crashed, some of the people who were sucked out of the back, this is, this is actually a really sad story. I thought like, I, like none of this is sad, but this part is, you know, um, some of the survivors were still alive. They got sucked out of the bag. And from the fuselage, the main group of survivors, they could see out of that original eight that got sucked out, they saw a guy walking towards them and like waving, but it was, <laughs> it was snowing so heavily and he fell down and collapsed and they never found his body. That's like, just like, fuck, dude. That's so fucked. It's a whole new definition of fucked. <laughs> so anyway, Nano Prado and the team of three, right? Um, they find this tale. And in the tale thank god they find like batteries like a bigger radio where they can transmit stuff like all kinds of shit they find extra food and they i mean it's nighttime now so they can't go back just yet um but they 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 live live it up man they find like a comic book like all three of them read it it's the first form of entertainment they've had in like fucking two months damn near (laughs) you know so like remember because they were on this fucking mountain for 72 days and uh dude they eventually take the battery transmitter back to the plane and stuff and then they're like okay now we're gonna go as far as we can and we're gonna try to get to chile because apparently once they can get over this mountain range and get down in there then it's actually like warm and like springs yeah. and like grass and trees and shit mm-hmm. and so they take the transmitter and all that shit and they take a battery back basically this shit's fucked they can't do anything with it because the kid's an 18 year old engineer he doesn't really know what he's doing yeah right so Nano Prado, YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Nano Prado and his buddy then basically become mountain climbers over fucking night, <laughs> right? And not equipped for this at all, and they're pretty much going on a suicide mission. And uh, so they end up climbing, and it takes them days to get through these mountains, man. And it is insane. And like they'll they'll look at a ridge, and they'll be like, "We have to get over that," and then it's just right there, right there, <laughs> right. And remember, they're forty miles off course, and they don't know that. So they'd get to like a top of a mountain peak, and they just see mountains as far as the eye can see. And they'd be like, "God damn it!" Because <laughs> then I started thinking about it. Like it's not like a straight walk, dude. It's like no. one, it's rough terrain, but you got to account for the going up, yeah, and then going down, man. So you're like probably tripling the distance you have to travel man it's insane but eventually they actually make it in miraculously make it into chile um and then they were able to get help and then they sent in helicopters and they got all the guys out the remaining 16 survivors actually uh, got out but one thing that was interesting is whenever uh nando prado the, the team of three they found the tail they actually found a camera in there too so they had these like human moments where they would just like take pictures and you could see them like smiling and stuff and i think they took it back to the plane with them and there was like a bunch of photos of these people but like in the background you just like see bodies <laughs> like eating bodies and they're shit. like smiling and reading a comic book and shit and there's like just a mangled pile of corpses back yeah. there <laughs> oh man well i think that about wraps it up man we did this one went on for a little long man but it was good it was good man so uh once again thanks for tuning in to everything guys and uh as you sit with your families at the dinner table for christmas uh and you know 
I want you to ask yourself, you know, like, what would it take for you to have your family for dinner? And uh, who's going first? And be thankful that you don't have to eat them yet. <laughs> Remember, we're only 10 days out. <laughs>